Well, of course, the news of the death of a little child hits us all very hard. Our faith reassures us that this little child is now in heaven. But the separation that we experience, we empathize with his parents in feeling that profound sense of loss in this life. And yet that is offset somewhat, of course, by our faith that the child is in the presence of God, the beatific vision now. But also, when we see the way things are going in the world today, and we have to confront the question, what will my children have to be dealing with? If I see the progression of uh, this deterioration of our society with the loss of faith, even now to contempt for God. I, as a parent, and I, as a priest, actually, too, face that, face that um, concern. You, as parents, I, as a priest, feel that same thing. We're concerned about the same thing. What will these youngsters have to be dealing with? And so it is a major concern. It is important for us to realize the supernatural side of this event, though. As St. Paul says, we have to grieve, but not as those who have no hope. So he doesn't forbid us from grieving the death of a little child. But he says we must never grieve as those who have no hope, like pagans. One thing that I stress whenever I get the chance is the concept of heaven that we Catholics have. I wasn't going to talk about that. But I think it's important for us to always kind of touch base with that. It's something that is unique to Catholicism, and that is having a very, very fully developed concept, as far as humanly possible, of what the goal is, of what heaven is, of what everlasting life means, when our Lord offers that, even promises it to those who are faithful. That is, after all, the object of our hope, isn't it? It is the object of the hope that Christ himself gave us by virtue of his promises that those who are faithful to him will receive that great gift, the greatest of all, the greatest reward of all, and that is everlasting life, share in the divine life. St. Paul tells us that this is something unimaginably wonderful that it so absolutely surpasses the human imagination to, to conceive of the joy that is heaven. He uses the expression, as you recall very well, no eye has seen, nor hath ear heard, nor hath it entered into the mind of man things, what things God has prepared for those who love him. Now this is St. Paul, who we read was wrapped to the third heaven, he was in ecstasy, taken up 
to hear things that no one could repeat, that there's no human language to express. And yet, he did not actually see God. He did not actually experience the joy of everlasting life. And so, we're talking about a little child now who's gone to heaven and has that great, greatest of all prizes, everlasting life. Doesn't have to go through the travail, travail of this life, doesn't have to go through the hardships and the challenges that would threaten his salvation. We can't predict what that life would have brought. We can't predict how that life would have ended or what the judgment would have been for that young child. 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now. Only God would know that. But this much we do know, because our faith guarantees us that it is so, that this child now sees God in heaven. And uh, that child sees God in heaven with the grace which we call the light of glory. A light of glory that God gives the soul, dying in the state of grace, as this child did, in order to give such a supernatural power to the, the soul of the child, the child's intellect and will, the very image of God in the child, created on the very day he first came into existence, that that human intellect, that human will, has been elevated by God to a supernatural power completely beyond any human ability to attain. And that, that child's intellect and will, even that of a two-year-old, by grace has now been raised so high that the child now more has, you might say, the mind of an angel than a mere human being. You might say that. But even beyond that of an angel, according to the angelic nature, that the child's mind has been elevated even beyond that, because even the greatest of the angels could not see God face to face, spirit to spirit, without this grace of the light of glory. And now this child has been elevated so high by God, and the power of his mind is so great that he can actually now see God as he is in heaven. And insofar as this child sees God in heaven right now, he sees God not infinitely, no one can, no creature is capable of an infinite act of any, by any measure, because there is no measure of an infinite act. But that elevation of the child's mind enables the child to see God as he is and wonder and wonder. And wonder at what? Wonder at the things that you and I believe in. Because that is what the child no longer believes in. That's what the child sees now. The child sees the trinity of persons in God. The trinity of persons which is something unique to Almighty God because of his infinite being.
The child now actually sees that. And with the angels, even with the greatest of the angels, this two-year-old child now wonders at what he sees. How magnificent, how splendid. The child sees in God, God's creation. The child now sees the God who created him. The child now sees himself, even in the mind of God, as a creature of God. And in the mind of God, he sees the creation, all of the creation, even his mother and his father and his siblings. He actually sees them now as they are in the mind of God. He is closer to them than he has ever been. He is actually closer to them than he could ever be in this life. He knows them more intimately. He loves them more powerfully than he ever could in this life. He is even closer to his mother now, as he is held there in the very mind of God, than he was when she held him in her arms the day he was born. He is even closer to her now than that. How close is a guardian angel to one of us? The closeness. It's hard for us to understand because <coughs> the guardian angel sees us in the very opposite way that we see each other. We see each other through the power of the human eye. And all we really see of each other is various wavelengths of light that we call color <coughs> that form a pattern. The cells of our brains registering there through the optic nerve. And so we learn to discern faces We learn to discern ex expressions, and we interpret these things. All we can do is interpret these things. The closest people on earth, husband and wife, the closest people on earth, twins, identical twins, those who are bound by blood and by ties of love for each other, can only interpret who that other person is. Their interpretation can be very wrong at times. But we have to interpret each other by virtue of what we sense, what we can see of each other, what we can hear of each other, the experience with each other, that's very, very remote, very lonely. So that a man and a woman can be married for each other for 50 years and still, and still be surprised and be learning for good or ill. But our guardian angels see us so they don't have to interpret what we say or do. Because our guardian angels actually see our souls. They see our souls first as spiritual beings. Guardian angels see the spiritual being. They see our souls. And they have much more perfect vision of us than, than we do of each other. 
no matter how intimately we connected, we may be connected with each other, the guardian angel is more intimately connected that God has commissioned him to be our guardian and to watch over us. And yes, he sees our souls and he knows what is happening there. He understands our virtues, our vices. He knows the decisions we're making. <coughs> he knows what temptations we're suffering, too. Well, you magnify that, you take that now, and you elevate that beyond the mere nature of an angel to see that, and you go to eternal life. As our Lord said to us earlier, there, there are angels in heaven, behold the face of God. When our Lord was talking about how terrible a scandal was for one of these innocent little children. Well, you elevate that now to that union with God, so they actually see creation in God. They see their mothers as their mothers are in the mind of God who creates them and who sustains them in being. The God to whom every hair on our heads is numbered, who knows us that perfectly, that intimately. Right? And that child now glimpses into that divine mind, the creative mind of God, and he sees his father there. And he's given then, as it were, to see his father through the very eyes of God. Now again, he can't know his father as the creator knows. No one can know that perfectly. Who is a mere creature? But still, it's as though God allows us to see through his own eyes those we love here on earth. That's, that's why we Catholics can invoke saints, because we know they are that close to us. We know they are that close to us. There's an immediacy there that can only come through that union with God in heaven. So even though uh, little Sebastian's parents right now are aching, and no doubt they're in agony over the crushing blow that has been dealt them by this, they have faith to prevent this blow from crushing them. Because they know by faith that he is now closer to them than he ever could be during this mortal life. It is an understanding this church's concept of the ultimate goal of life for every one of us. It is in understanding the church's teaching on everlasting life that we must interpret our entire faith. I mean, everything, everything our Lord did, the nature of sin, even the nature of condemnation, even the nature, the idea of hell. It all has to be understood in terms of what we were created for, what the goal is, what Christ came to do, and why he came to do it. So it's not just a matter of our Lord coming in order to save us from the fires of hell. He did. He did. And it's important for us to be aware of it. 
because only in understanding the the nature of hell and its sufferings can we actually begin to respond as it were to God, to God's grace. Why? Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so the church has always understood that human nature being what it is and fallen as it is needs to make a beginning. It needs to make a beginning toward the great goal, but a goal which is beyond its power of imagining. And therefore the great goal, which is beyond the power of human imagination, is for us sometimes just not enough to enable us to overcome the pull of immediate gratification. Because heaven and everlasting life are so far beyond our ability to evaluate, appreciate, <clears throat> it is very difficult for us to be moved to sacrifice what good we have here now <clears throat> in order to obtain that. Something that is so, so far beyond us that it might even cause us fear. It might even awaken in us a kind of anxiety about heaven seems so far away. Why not indulge ourselves here as little children? If you were to ask a little child whether the child wants the candy now or a... Uh, an investment of $10,000 toward the child's future, redeemable when the child turns 21. What do you think the child would take? The child's not going to be able to grasp the concept of the value. Something so far away and something so abstract, the child's going to reach for the candy. Well, you and I are the child. We are the child. Because it doesn't have the allure. It doesn't have the power. So we need something to start us on our way. We need to make a beginning somewhere toward wisdom. That is the union of our wills with the divine will. And how are we going to do that unless we start with what we know and what we understand? And what we understand... Unfortunately, sad to say, but I'm glad we do understand this. It's a good, if not the only place to start, is our pain and punishment. Even the loss, the pain of loss in hell, does not necessarily phase us. As I mentioned before, the idea of losing God to some people, would mean nothing whatsoever. So the pain of loss, which is actually the greatest of the pains of hell, when people start, doesn't mean much to them. You tell them, 
then in hell they will not be with God. They will not see God. There are many people, especially in the world today, who might say that's good. That's wonderful. That's what they want, to escape from God. But it is the pains of hell that might impress them. And so God instills in us, at least those who are willing to give him this credit, God instills in us the ability to fear God's justice, to fear his justice. And for how many souls now in heaven was that the beginning of wisdom? Was that not the beginning of wisdom for them? This child who went to heaven today did not have to experience that fear. A free gift was given to him, perfect gift. To the agency of his parents who had him baptized, the virtues of faith and hope and charity were instilled in his soul, latent as they were. And that child was in the state of God's grace. He died and did not have to go through that process that you and I have to go through to save our souls. So. But it's important, it's important for us to understand what has happened today in relationship to what we were talking earlier about the sufferings of hell. Parents have the comfort of knowing their child will never know the sufferings of hell, will never be in danger of experiencing the sufferings of hell. The child will never know the physical pains of torment. <clears throat> the child will never know the spiritual pain of loss. The child is now delivered by that. In heaven, in heaven, there are those who would consider that to be a very great blessing, to be spared all of that. But our natural grief being what it is, it is for the benefit of the soul. Those who are left here be left here to carry that cross with our Lord and let that in a sense, precipitate their salvation and be the greatest boost to the salvation of their souls. They love our Lord somewhat, but they also have the added grace now of having someone else in heaven whom they truly love. They truly love. And that, for them, might make all the difference. You never know. As a motivation for being faithful, always. So we have to trust in the providence of God. Because his will is salvation. The salvation of souls. And our Lord will do what is necessary to save souls and bring them all to everlasting life. With that, we have to trust him. We have to have confidence in his will. Now we're today closing the octave of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. 
And we are also within the octave of St. John the Baptist, the birth of St. John the Baptist. If there are two hearts that epitomize what a man's heart should be, it would be, or I should say, they would be these two hearts, the Sacred Heart of Jesus and St. John the Baptist. We are soon going to celebrate the feast of St. Peter and St. Paul. And I would add them to our list here as far as epitomizing what a man's heart should be. Now, these men were not always admirable. These men had many failings, but God changed them. They had to be converted, Peter and Paul. Of course, we also have to add to our list the one whose litany I referred to earlier today, St. Joseph, God's choice to be the foster father of his own son here on earth. We have some wonderful examples. I mean, the example of what God made of Peter, what God made of Paul. We have the example of St. Joseph. We have the example of St. John the Baptist. Both of them considered saints of the Old Testament, dying before Christ died on the cross. And, of course, ultimately we have the Sacred Heart of Jesus. So we, we have plenty of examples God has shown to us. We have those examples to inspire us as men to embrace the manly virtues, to be truly those vir, to be, to be the men we are meant to be. And we need to examine those hearts. We need to examine not only the heart of John the Baptist, the heart of our Lord, the heart of St. Joseph, who is often inscrutable. We need to examine also the hearts of St. Peter and St. Paul, whom God had much work to do, much work to do during their lives here, to transform them into the men that he needed them to be, to be apostles. So we examine them, we study them, we learn from them, especially from our Lord. What does our Lord say? Our Lord says, learn from me. Our Lord says, learn from me. Learn what? Could have been so many things. Our Lord says, learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart. That's what our Lord starts with. He says, learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart. Of all the things our Lord could have said, we have to learn from him. That's what he tells us. That's what we have to learn from him. Meekness and humility of heart. And if I may, I'd like to turn for a moment to uh, another person, of course, very dear to all of us and most dear to our Lord, and that is our Blessed Lady. I ended the last conference uh, by referring to her litany too and pointing out the manly virtues she had. The virtues of prudence and justice and fortitude and temperance were clear in the life of our Blessed Lady and are praised in the litany to our Blessed Mother. But you know what is really ironic? What is really ironic about that litany of Our Lady praising her virtues, praising all of her wonderful qualities, 
Nowhere do we find in the litany of Our Lady, Mother Most Humble, or Virgin Most Humble. We don't find a praise of Our Lady for her humility. And yet her humility was the key to her sanctity. It's puzzling perhaps a bit. You see, humility is really a matter of reality, acknowledging reality, that's all it is. It's knowing your place, it's knowing who you are, it's knowing your relationship, your true relationship with your Creator and with your Redeemer. That's really who tells you who you are. That's what tells you who you are. Those who do not understand that relationship they have as creatures, as creatures of God, in his own image and likeness, image by nature, likeness by grace, those who don't understand that relationship they have with God, the fact that they are creatures of God and created for the sake of his love, created in his own image, they don't know who they are. They wander the earth seeking identity. They have a constant identity crisis. They're trying to identify themselves, stealing other people's identities in the process sometimes. They don't know who they are. They can't answer the question, who am I, what am I doing here? Why do I even exist? It's the only answer there is because it's the only true answer. They are creatures of God, sinful, but redeemed, loved. And they are created for that love. That's the answer. It's the only answer. Anything else is complete fantasy. You see, Our Lady understood that. That was what her humility did for her. Our Lady understood her true relationship to Almighty God. She understood what that relationship was, her true relationship with Almighty God. And so she had what you and I might call sanity. Sanity. To know who she is. To understand who she really is. To be in touch with reality, the reality of who she is. That's what humility does. Pride destroys that relationship. Pride falsifies it. Pride actually makes one insane because it distorts, completely distorts one's idea of reality. But humility really enabled our Blessed Mother to see exactly who she really was. Humility and lowliness were her chief characteristic. She says, in the Magnificat, for the Almighty One hath done great things for me. He hath regarded the lowliness of his handmaid. And it was precisely this virtue that made her suitable for the divine plan. For the divine plan. She knew who she was, she knew what her relationship to God was, 
It's precisely that humility that enabled her to be suitable to fulfill the divine plan for her. Mary's humility enabled her to see clearly her part, her part in the divine plan. What was that part? She said it herself. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. She saw clearly her relationship to God. Behold the handmaid of the Lord, she said. Humility is the virtue which enables us to understand and to embrace clearly our true relationship to God and to our neighbor also. The two great commandments come into play here. The two great commandments, actually, require, absolutely require humility. It is impossible to fulfill these two great commandments without the virtue of humility. Mary saw herself in her true relationship with Almighty God. Her humility enabled her to see clearly she, she is the handmaid of the Lord. She was there to do God's will. And you know what she said to the angel? Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it done unto me according to thy word. How many times have you said that in prayer? How many times have you said that? in prayer without perhaps even realizing it. Be it done unto me according to thy word. What is that? What is that in prayer? Be it done according to thy word. Thus be it done. Be it done as, as you have said every time you answer the prayer, Amen or Amen. That's exactly what you're saying. That's exactly what you're saying. When Mary said that, be it done to me according to thy word, she was simply saying, Amen. What the idea that is expressed in the Hebrew, Amen. Amen. Be it done as you say. Be it done as you say. How many times does the priest say that in the course of the Mass? How many times do you say that in the course of the Rosary? How many times do you answer a prayer, yourself answering your own prayer with the word Amen, and reinforce it? as it were, reconfirm it with that statement, because it is a statement. Be, let it be done. Let it be done. As it is said, so let it be. Let it be done. That's what you're saying there. This is exactly echoing Mary's answer to the angel. Be it done as you say. And so when you answer that amen at the end of a prayer, you are as it were, sealing that prayer with an act of the will, assenting to it and reconfirming it in your own mind. Be it so. Be it so. This is what our lady said to the angel, basically. That wonderful amen, that great amen, that great let it be so. Fiat mihi secundum verbum tuum. Let it be done according to your words. Mary was able to say that because she understood exactly who she is. Her humility enabled her to see clearly who she is, her relationship with her Creator, and even her relationship with the plan of God to bring the Redeemer into the world. She was given the grace to accept that, 
to consent to it, and to take a remarkable, unique part in that divine plan. Now, when you and I think about that divine plan, and we think about Mary's part in it, we realize that there are many mysteries and many great events in Mary's life and the life of our Lord that we celebrate when we pray the rosary. I mean, we do think about the Annunciation, the great event in the life of Our Lady. We think about the Visitation, the Nativity, the Presentation, the finding of the child Jesus in the Temple. Just in the first 12 years of Our Lord's life, we see these wondrous events. But we have to realize that in carrying out this divine plan, there were countless things that Mary did that we don't think about, that are not on our radar, as it were, that are not recounted. For example, the journey to the home of Elizabeth for the visitation. How many steps did Mary take? How many steps did, did Our Lady take? We don't know. Hundreds, thousands. And yet every one of those steps was part of the divine plan. Every single step. As simple as it was, as understood as it was, as unheralded as, as it is, is not recorded in history, every step that Mary took, but every single one of those steps was part of that divine plan. So that the great event of the visitation would happen so that Mary would arrive on the doorstep of her kinswoman, Elizabeth, so that she would greet, she would greet Elizabeth, and the sound of her voice then would carry into the very womb of Elizabeth so that John the Baptist, our saint of this time, would leap for joy, even in his mother's womb. The sound of her voice, at the sound of her voice, you see, and Elizabeth then would be filled with the Holy Ghost, moved by the Holy Ghost to praise God and to please praise Mary. And blessed are you, are you who has believed. Blessed are, are you who have believed that the word of God would be accomplished in you. All of that was set in motion. Not only when Mary arrived at the doorstep of Elizabeth, it was set in motion when Mary took her first step, when Mary first understood that she should go to Elizabeth. Was Mary expecting these things to happen? No, evidently not. But it was her mission to go. She knew that. It's what God wanted her to do, and she went. And every single step she took in the way, as seemingly simple and... Um, understood as it was, taken for granted as it were, that it was, every single step she took on the way was necessary to fulfill that great moment and make that great moment happen. And with every step that she took, Our Lady was glorifying God because it was all unified by the motivation, one single motivation, and that is to fulfill God's will, to accomplish his purpose. 
every beat of her heart, every breath she took, every step she made, they were all directed to that purpose. They were all the work of the handmaid of the Lord. They were all motivated by that desire to serve. Now, why am I mentioning that? Because it applies to you and me too. It applies to you and to me here today. Because we are here not by accident. We are here in this world now. We're here in the world now, as it is right now, by God's will. God has placed each one of us here now. This is our time. We are part of the divine plan. We are part of God's plan here. And we have to see it that way. We have to see ourselves that way, as part of the divine plan. We have a role to play in the divine plan. We figure in the divine plan, somehow. Just as with Our Lady, the event of the visitation, the sanctifying of John the Baptist in his mother's own womb, before he was born, a great work of Christ sanctifying this soul. begun from womb to womb, married to Elizabeth. That came at the conclusion of a long journey, but many steps, mundane, ordinary steps, but every one of them was blessed, and every one of them was motivated by that all-encompassing purpose of fulfilling God's will, that she go to assist Elizabeth. And every step, as I say, was a fulfillment of the divine plan. You and I are here now as part of that divine plan. And so we must think about the steps we are to take and what we are to accomplish here. You and I must always be willing to answer, as Mary answered, Amen, be it done according to thy word. We must have the humility to see ourselves as God's creatures and thus as having a part in a divine plan. We all must contribute whatever we can. Whatever we have, whatever we are, we must contribute that to the accomplishment of that divine purpose. Our own personal petty purposes take on a great significance if we realize the scope of the overall plan of God in which we have a part, in which we actually are a part, of which we are a, are a part. You know, there was a theory that was launched, um, oh, actually relatively recently, it's certainly within our own lifetimes, by a man named Edvard Lorenz. Lorenz spoke of what has come to be known as the butterfly effect. Some of you might be familiar with that as a sort of a part of chaos theory. The idea that minute changes in a system result in massive differences in outcome, the results. And one of the uh, examples given to illustrate this idea in physics 
refers to the stroke of a butterfly wing, the single stroke of the wing of a butterfly can contribute to what ultimately becomes a tornado. The idea of the butterfly effect is that even the tiniest, tiniest things can have dramatic outcomes, powerful results. Lawrence actually was using his ideas uh, to study weather. And he would type in, he would enter in figures that would produce certain results, actually. He would go by weather uh, developments and, and outcomes. And then he did something curious. He began to round off the figures just a little bit tiny little bit, just alter them a little bit, the numbers, the ciphers, just change them a little bit and then enter them in and see what would happen. And he was shocked to find that even altering the figures just a tiny bit could produce dramatically different results. And he was moved to actually expressed that idea in this butterfly effect so that uh, he talked about the tiny difference of a wing of a butterfly beating in the air could contribute in the course of weeks miles away a terrific storm that would brew Now, this was part of chaos theory, but the odd thing is that it was called chaos theory because the idea is we can't predict these things. Because these systems are too complex, they're simply beyond our power to understand them and to factor all these things in. So to us, it looks like chaos. But in the mind of God, it is not chaos. God factors in the beat of the wing of the butterfly. As I say, I mean, our Lord said very clearly, not a sparrow falls to the ground without your heavenly Father knowing it. Not a hair falls on your head. The very hairs on your head are numbered. Such is the mind of God. There is no chaos in the mind of God. No chaos whatsoever. There's only providence. And so what seems chaotic to us is not. It's all part of the divine plan. And God has factored in the decisions we make. Free as we are to make them. He factors all of them in. And they all play a part in his divine plan. You and I may say, well, Maybe I'm more like the tornado very often, but the fact is we seem so ineffectual. Maybe we're more like the beat of the wing of the butterfly. But even the wing of the butterfly can produce dramatic results, powerful results. It's all part of a divine plan, you see. The point Accept that fact that you are indeed part of a divine plan. You are here now for a reason. 
God has placed you personally. He's placed me personally here now at this moment in the world's history for a definite reason, part of his divine plan. We have a role to play. We figure in the outcome. We figure in the outcome. And so we must, like Mary, answer, be it done to me according to thy word. Thy word be done. Thy will be done as our Lord said in the Garden of Gethsemane, as we say in the Our Father, thy will be done. And we have to start with ourselves, thy will be done in me. And we might, we might out of a false humility just say, well, I'm so ineffectual, I can do nothing. But that is actually... Uh, failing, failing God's purpose. Every one of us has a role to play in this. And the decisions we make day by day, even though they may seem no more effectual than the beating of a single butterfly wing, the decisions we make today will factor into the outcomes. They have real part to play in this. We must be ready to contribute to this purpose, to God's plan. <laughs> Young Sebastian Shohan is part of that divine plan. In heaven right now, he actually still is. But his short life, two years, will have an effect that will contribute to the overall outcome of the last judgment in so many ways, so many decisions, so many sacrifices that contribute to the glory of God and his adoration of the humble acceptance of his divine will. It's all part of a divine plan, you see. That plan we have to fulfill, and we know what God wants of us. Perhaps it's hard for us to know from day to day, from moment to moment, exactly. But still we have the broad outlines of God want, what God wants of us today. And these are expressed again in the, in the virtues that we are meant to produce in our lives. We are meant to produce these things. These, these virtues are meant to be productive. And uh, when we meet again tomorrow, I want to talk about the virtues of prudence and justice and fortitude and temperance and how we apply them so that we can actually contribute to that divine plan of which we have a, not only have a role to play, but of which we are actually substantially, we are personally a part. So ask our Lord to enable you to appreciate the fact and not shirk the responsibility that he's put you here for a very specific reason to contribute. However much or however little you may think it may be, God can take that contribution and make it truly wonderful. In heaven, we'll know what that was. Here, we have to proceed by faith. God bless you.